Welcome to another Godcast from Whosoever, an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. I'm Candace Shalou Hodge, the founder and editor of Whosoever. Thanks for joining us. Just when you thought that not another book could be written to shed new light on the so-called clobber passages that are used against gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians, along comes Rick Grentlinger, who schools us in Gay Christian 101. Also, a filmmaker named Lisa Darden is trying to bridge the gap between GLBT people and those on the other side. Her new film, For Such a Time as This, features interviews with leaders in the gay and anti-gay communities, including the editor of a humble internet magazine for GLBT Christians. I wonder who that could be. We'll wrap it up with a meditation moment and share some holy humor. But first, we hope you'll join us on January 31st at 7 p.m. Eastern Time for the first part of a two-part teleseminar on the Bible and homosexuality. The seminar will be hosted by myself and Reverend Paul Turner, the senior pastor at General Spirit Christian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Participants will get a packet of notes and other material, including an opportunity to download the audio of the call afterward. There is a suggested donation to whosoever to join the teleseminar, and we hope you'll support our work in this way while we support your need for spiritual growth and education. To order the audio of past teleseminars and get details on how to register for upcoming seminars, go to whosoever.org slash seminars. We hope you'll join us. Many books have been written about what the Bible does and does not say about homosexuality. Daniel Helminiak's book by that title stayed at the top of the bestseller list at gay and lesbian bookstores for quite a while. It's a hot topic. Whosoever's Bible and homosexuality page is easily the most viewed page at our site. However, I've not seen a book as comprehensive as Rick Brentlinger's Gay Christian 101. He spent three years researching the use of the so-called clobber passages over the centuries and discovered that the use of these passages against our community is a relatively recent phenomenon. The passages most used against us were not originally interpreted as condemning homosexuals or homosexuality. I talked with Brentlinger recently about his background and what led him to write this extraordinary book. I grew up in a radically conservative, fundamental Baptist home. We were not just fundamental Baptists. We were King James Bible-believing Baptists. So we didn't use other Bibles. So we, we came from a background that, that was very radically fundamentalist conservative and Bible-believing. And I'm still very much a conservative Bible-believing Christian. But even coming from that background, uh, I was a gay kid, I was a gay teen, I was a gay college student, uh, I knew that. And so I had to find a way to deal with that, and that was incredibly difficult, because there wasn't much available when I was growing up uh, that addressed the issue of being both gay and Christian. How did you begin your struggle making the Bible your friend instead of something that has been used to abuse you and other gay and lesbian Christians? Well, until I was uh, a teenager, I really wasn't aware that the Bible had some verses in it that seemed to condemn gay people. I mean, I didn't even know what, what it meant to be gay or homosexual. I just knew that I was different and that I liked boys and not girls. What happened, I think, was that I was brought up to love the Bible, love the Scriptures, and to love God and to believe the Bible. And so it wasn't a problem of not believing the Bible. It was a problem of of understanding what the Bible said in context. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of uh, Christians, gay and non-gay, go wrong. They profess not to be literalists, and yet on a few verses 
they seem to take them literally and say, well, this is a mean verse because it seems to condemn me, and then they reject the rest of the Bible, even though they profess they're not literalists, but on the few verses that cause them to reject the Bible, they try to interpret them literally without any context being involved. For me, when I started to struggle with the with being gay and Christian, my way of dealing with that was to believe the Bible, and I figured I was wrong. My feelings were wrong. Uh, everything I knew was wrong. And again, context is important. I was in an era when I didn't know any other gay people. I thought I was the only gay person on earth. Right. I'd never seen a gay man or a lesbian woman. I didn't even know what they were. Mm-hmm. I just knew I was different. And that feeling of being alone and uh, contributed to, to the self-condemnation I felt when I read some of those Bible verses, what are called the Faber passages. But over time, uh, God did let me meet some gay people, mm-hmm. and God gave me assurance constantly that I was saved and born again, and that uh, He loved me, and that uh, I was His child, that I was, I was uh, just as saved as everybody else, even though I struggled with being gay. When did it it finally hit you that context really was everything when you started reading the Bible? Because you said earlier, you know, I believe that I must be wrong because the Bible was right, but that was obviously with beliefs that you had been given about the Bible. That's it, exactly. The mistake I made on the proper passages, the verses that seemed to condemn gay people, was that I believed what I had been taught and never studied those passages for myself in context. And when I studied those passages for myself in the context, all by myself, without anyone else around, just me and the Bible, reading it and studying it and praying over it, God, the Holy Spirit, pointed out to me that those verses are addressed to a particular people in a particular historical situation under particular laws which are not applicable today. Mm -hmm. And that was so enlightening because it wasn't like someone came to me and said, hey, that's been taken out of context, it was like in the privacy of my own room, I studied those things and read the Bible and prayed over it, and God showed it to me. Mm -hmm. And when God shows you something in the Bible, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) It's not that I got it from somebody else, it's that God showed it to me and God impressed on my heart that I could be right with him and be a gay man. And even a practicing homosexual, I could be in a gay relationship that included a sexual component and still be absolutely right with God, and God have nothing against me uh, for being in that relationship or for having uh, sex in a homosexual relationship. So when did you decide to put all this together in a book that you've called Gay Christian 101? I made that decision after a traumatic experience in my family. Uh, My mother died of cancer. I was able to nurse her for the last year of her life. And after she died, or right before she died, she asked me if I would stay with my dad. She said he just won't be able to be by himself. We've been together 55 years. And would you stay with him? And so I said, yes, I'll do that. And I sold my house and I stayed with my dad. And he had a terrible accident. He fell, broke his hip, and I had to take care of him for three months Mm. until we got him rehabilitated where he could get around again. 
And during that time, I, I had a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I said, I want to put aside everybody else's dreams for me and, and what everyone else thinks I should do. And I'm going to do something I've wanted to do my entire life. I'm going to write a book. And then I had to decide, what, are, what am I going to write about? And I thought, well, the thing that would have helped me 30 years ago when I was just a, a college kid, you know, trying to come to terms with being a gay Christian in a fundamental independent Baptist college, which was not gay-friendly, yeah. the thing that would have helped me was a book that would explain all of the clobber passages in proper historical, literary, doctrinal context so that people would not have to go through what I went through for almost 30 years. And the book itself is incredibly comprehensive. I mean, you do go back to what the earliest um, interpreters of the Bible had thought about some of these passages that are now used against gay and lesbian people and point out how they weren't used against gay and lesbian people very early on. Let's just talk about some of the particular verses. Now, everybody's big one seems to be Romans 1. How do we approach Romans 1 from a historical perspective and see that that we're not condemned by it? Romans 1 was uh, is, is so interesting, and that was one of the most difficult ones for me to deal with until I started to study the historical context. Uh, Romans 1, when it's read in the 21st century, because we have a certain fixed cultural view of homosexuality, when we read men with men or uh, women with women, we automatically think, oh, those are gay people, those are homosexuals, as we understand them today. And, of course, that's completely wrong. It's inaccurate historically, and it's inaccurate doctrinally. Paul never intended that. Uh, God never intended anybody to come away from Romans 1 with that viewpoint. How do we know that? Well, early Christians did not view Romans 1 the way it, it is viewed by uh, fundamentalist, conservative, evangelicals, and Catholics, and, you know, most of Christianity today. Early Christians, like uh, Philo of Alexandria, uh, he lived in from 20 B.C. to 40 A.D., Philo uh, understood that Romans 1 was dealing with shrine prostitution. Uh, Philo referenced uh, the Levitical passages, the clobber passages, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind, in his writing, and he linked those to shrine prostitution. Uh, people like Justin Martyr, who lived within about a hundred years of the writing of Romans, spoke about the verses in Romans 1 that are said to condemn homosexuals, and Justin linked them to shrine prostitution. Mm -hmm. uh, Aristides was a famous Christian preacher. Uh, he was not only famous historically, but he's, you know, to us today, but he was famous in the time he lived. Uh, in fact, he would preach in front of the Roman emperor, Hadrian. Hmm. And in a, an oration, a sermon he gave to Hadrian in 126 A.D., Aristides linked the passage in Romans 1, 26 and 27, the clobber passage, which is said to condemn homosexuals. Aristides linked that passage to shrine prostitution and even named the false gods that Paul was referring to. And, of course, I cite that in my book and on my website. Uh, this sets a historical context for us to understand what Paul was saying in Romans 1. Uh, Romans 1 was written in the first century A.D., around 58 A.D., and at that time there was a pagan goddess named Cybele, C-Y-B-E-L-E, 
her temple sat atop the Palatine Hill. It overlooked the uh, the uh, big amphitheater where they had the chariot races. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had a long bank of white stone steps leading up to the temple. And so from anywhere in the city that you had a line of sight to the Palatine Hill, that temple stood out because those white steps just seemed to blow and to float in the air. Hmm. Uh, Sibylle's temple employed shrine prostitutes, both male and female. The male shrine prostitutes were referred to as galley priests, and these were emasculated, usually castrated, uh, male priests who had sex with the male worshippers. The, the male worshippers would have anal sex with those priests, mm-hmm. and the priests who had not yet been castrated would have anal sex with the women and the men, mm-hmm. and those people were called in the Hebrew Old Testament Kadesh and Kadesha, and that's what Paul was referring to. And we, and we must say those are the shrine temple prostitutes. These were fertility rites. Those were fertility rites. They yeah. were worshiping the fertility goddess. They were basically offering their seed as an offering to the fertility goddess. Mm-hmm. And so when Paul writes Romans 1, that is precisely what he's referring to. And he goes through a long uh, classical Greek argument about idolatry, and he lays the foundation. The people in the Old Testament were idolatrous, both Jews and Gentiles, and their idolatry included worship of images, and their idolatry drove them away from God, and God distanced himself from them because of their idolatry. And then it's like Paul says, for instance, uh, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and women with women. And he gives that as an illustration of idolatry, shrine prostitution, that every one of his readers would have been intimately familiar with because they lived in the city of Rome. Right, right. And it's impossible to divorce that historical, cultural, religious context from Romans 1 if you're going to be an honest interpreter of the Scripture. And a lot of non-gay Christians are just not honest or they haven't studied and they just ignore that entirely and they try to make it a blast from Paul and from God against homosexuals and lesbians. Well, how do you... I mean, it's all great and fascinating information and and certainly proves our case beyond a shadow of a doubt, but how do you argue that with someone who's just going to say, Romans 1 says, blah, blah, blah. It, you know, I don't know how you... Does that is that a sort of an argument that really changes hearts and minds? It will if we keep uh, a consistent response to the people who make that uh, that superfluous argument that it's just uh, it's just referring to homosexuals and it couldn't mean anything else. Mm-hmm. We have to be consistent in answering that, and we have to take them to truth. Uh, truth will stand on its own eventually. But a lie repeated often enough and not refuted uh, seems to become the truth for a lot of people. We need to be persistent in, in confronting the lies that people make against us. And sometimes I think we are too silent and we, we say there's no reason to argue with them because they will never change their mind. But I think there are a lot of honest Christians who will eventually change their mind. I'm speaking of non-gay Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, who will eventually change their mind. Uh, on my website, I list under the Sodom uh, story three prominent 
very, very anti-gay evangelicals who are have changed their mind about the Sodom story and who say that that story is not about current uh, sexual relationships between homosexuals. Uh, one of those men, uh, Dr. Robert Gagnon of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, is the leading anti-gay individual in the world today. Mm-hmm. The best book that is anti-gay, and uh, he is the most prolific author and speaker in, on anti-gay topics. And yet he admits that the Sodom story uh, is not an ideal text to guide contemporary Christian sexual ethics. Uh, he, he states that very clearly in his book. And, and he also states that uh, the rubric under which uh, the Sodom story is told in the Bible is inhospitality, not homosexuality. Wow. So I think we, we have made some progress. Uh, and I think it's just being consistent and telling the truth. And the truth is going to win out over time because God is the author of truth. Your, your website is gaychristian101.com, and if people are interested in buying the book, they can go there, certainly. But what else can they find on your website? I've got a, a lot of information on the website, uh, some of which is not in the book, uh, that explains the slobber passages. And the interesting thing about my website is that I use a lot of color pictures, and I even use videos on some of the pages to teach scriptural truth to gay Christians. Uh, for instance, when we talk about Romans 1 and Sibylle, the fertility goddess, uh, I don't just put that in text on the page and then leave it. I actually show the ruins of Sibylle's temple. There's a picture on the website that shows the ruins of that temple and those white steps I mentioned. And there's a picture of a Roman coin which was honoring Sibylle and her likeness is on the coin. That coin was circulating in the first century A.D. when Paul wrote Romans. And I try on every clobber passage to have lots of pictures that illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, in the Leviticus uh, section of my website, I show pictures of Molech, the fire god, and I show pictures of Ashtoreth, his fertility goddess consort. And I do that to illustrate that this isn't just something a gay Christian made up and is trying to uh, rewrite history with. These are historical facts that non-gay scholars uh, and and many places, non-gay or non-gay, non-Christian scholars have uh, put in books many, many years ago, and it, so it's not just a gay Christian trying to give a an incorrect viewpoint. It's just historical information that's out there available for anyone. And I I put a lot of links on my website to uh, historical passages which back up what I'm saying, so that people can do further research for themselves. They don't have to take my word for it. Uh, they can research it, and I give the links. And what do you hope people get out of uh, the Gay Christian 101 book? I hope they will come away from it, first of all, with the belief that the Bible is God's Word and that the Bible can be trusted, that God loves them and cares deeply about them and wants them to be saved, wants them to have a personal relationship with Him, and also that they'll embrace the truth of the Scripture that God does not hate gay people, that God does not hate homosexuality, that God does not hate lesbians, that God loves us, and that we are a vital part of God's plan for the church. For more information and to order the book, visit Rick Brentlinger's website at gaychristian101.com.
from Camp Out to The Bible Tells Me So, there have been plenty of documentaries produced lately about gay and lesbian Christians. None of them has attempted what Lisa Darden is trying to do, bridge the gaping chasm between the gay community and the anti-gay community. As an experienced filmmaker, Darden has set out to prove that the ground at the cross is level. What she's discovered during the filming of For Such a Time as This has been at times surprising and depressing, but always pointing toward grace. I talked with Darden recently and asked her what inspired her to start this project. Well, I was living near San Francisco in San Anselmo, California. It was in 1990. And I've become a new Christian. Um, interestingly, I've been led to the Lord by someone who was Christian and also happened to be gay. And I wasn't aware at the time that there was such a division and controversy in the church regarding the issue. And I was attending some different churches with people who actually were making comments regarding homosexuals and that uh, they actually felt the need to make it clear to me that it was not possible to be Christian and gay. And that's when things really got started. And I met people like John Evans, who was one of the founders of Love in Action, who also became a good friend of mine. And I met other people who ran and had gone through the ex-gay ministries, including John and Ann Polk. Um, They actually went on to be spokespeople for Exodus, Love in Action, Love One Out and Focus on the Family. Mm-hmm. And I met John Smid, who was, and he still is, the director of Love in Action, and Frank and Anita Worthen, and Kent Philpott, who also started Love in Action in 1972. And I had been, I'd begun struggling with the issue and started asking the question to people, you know, anybody would answer, <laughs> can you be Christian and gay? Can you be gay and Christian? And it was really in a search to find the answer for myself. Mm-hmm. And after becoming painfully aware of the division within the church, one day in 1991, I was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, literally crying out to God, asking, you know, how on earth would he be able to bridge this divide? And, and I, was, I was so incredibly aware of the fact that gays needed to know the love of God, too. Mm. And it just didn't seem like that was, the message was getting out. So I was on the bridge, and while I was on the bridge, I got the idea and the name for my production company, Hope Unlimited Productions. And then the vision and the title of the film for such a time as this just came to me. And I had no idea at the time that it was going to take 15 years to actually start production on the film. And then 17 years later, I began editing and we're in post-production. Wow. God's timing, huh? Absolutely. (laughs) So what do you think is at the heart of the divide over homosexuality? Well, I think within the Christian community, I'd have to say it's fear and misunderstanding. Um, I think in many ways there's a lack of compassion. And in a sense, um, in some circles, uh, the people don't even have to care about gays because they believe that homosexuality is a choice and that gays can change. And if they choose to be gay, that they will be separated from God and therefore people separate from them. Um, That's caused a huge divide that's been difficult to bridge. And I think what happens is it becomes a guilt-by-association mindset, Mm -hmm. and no one wants to be connected to it. It's not necessarily that the people who are helping to create the divide are bad or evil. It's that they've been taught these things, and it's hard for them to look at it from any other perspective without fear. And it's hard for them to separate the person and the sex act and to see the homosexual as a human being. Um, I think the fear is clearly evident on both sides. There's a pro just a real prevalent us-versus-them mentality Mm -hmm. that keeps people stuck and unable to even entertain the thought of getting on the bridge together. Um, There's a lot of vilifying and demonizing going on, and people are constantly focusing on the negatives and perpetrating the fear of each other within each other. I believe that's at the heart of the problem. So how can your film help to bridge this gap, then? Probably by clarifying the misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. Um, We show people who have honestly addressed the issue 
um, and have come to a place of love and understanding and compassion for people they might not agree with, but they're willing to treat them as human beings with dignity, love, and respect. And you have been interviewing people from coast to coast for a while now. Um, give us a little bit of an idea of some of the most fascinating or enlightening interviews that you've done with people so far. Wow, that's so hard. <laughs> I know. So many. That's so many. Um, it's really hard to single them out. You know, I've been really privileged to meet some of the most amazing and courageous people. Um, I honestly value every single one of the stories that they generously shared with me. Um, let's see. We've done, I've done interviews with actors, theologians, ministers, authors, um, musicians, comedians, just people from all walks of life. And I have to say, if, I, if you were going to put me to the fire, mm-hmm. um, Evelyn and Dennis Shave were fascinating. Um, they're warm, they're just wonderful human beings, and they're perfect examples of what I consider Christ's unconditional love for all people. They truly inspired me. Um, and who are they? Dennis and Evelyn Shave are a straight couple. Mm-hmm that um, were like many evangelical Christians. They had very strong feelings about homosexuality and believed that the two did not um, mix. Mm-hmm. And they were very clear to let people know that. Um, but somebody had come into their lives that they'd known, and she had come out, and a lot of things had happened. But she ended up coming back into their lives, and the Lord started working in and through them. And actually... They had a change of heart and become, became very compassionate. And now they minister to people and meet them where they're, where they're at, just like Jesus does. Wow, and, cool. Mm-hmm. Billie Jean King was cool. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. Um, she's, I mean, she's had an incredible life, and she just she has a big, wonderful heart. She's pretty cool. Um, Tony, and Camp, Tony Campolo and Peggy Campolo mm-hmm. are two people I probably have uh, the most love and utmost respect for. And Jay Baker is a breath of fresh air. Um, he's terrific. But there's so many, I just really can't even think of them all right now. What has surprised you during the making of this film? Let's see. <laughs> Pick one. How scared people are um, to deal with the issue. I think it's how difficult it's been navigating my way through it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I once said to, said to a friend of mine, I think, I, I feel like I'm walking on a, a tightrope, and she said, honey, you're walking on dental floss. <laughs> and that's a very fine line, and then she told me to be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I set out to interview both sides of the divide and hope, in hope that they might be willing to talk to one another at some point in time. And I was hoping that the mudslinging and the name-calling might actually stop long enough to get a few decent words in edgewise. Yeah. And that I might be able to encourage them to play nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I realized that no one was willing to cross the picket line, um, I knew my job was going to be to get them all together in the film. Hmm. and hope and pray that at some point they'd be able to reach some common ground. I was hoping, you know, we could create a dialogue in place of a monologue and that actually so often gets shared from both sides of the fence. Right. And I was taught that the ground of the foot of the cross was level, and I was hoping that we'd all meet there. Uh, But it kind of surprised me that people weren't as eager to do that as I was. Well, so now that you've talked to folks on both sides of this divide, do you have more hope or less hope that the gap can be bridged? That is an interesting question. <laughs> I, I do have hope, but I also know that people are slow to respond sometimes. Yeah. I think in my heart that something's happening spiritually now, and I believe that it's going to manifest in the na- natural and sh- the change is inevitable. But it seems like 
a lot of people are looking for permission to do the right thing. And it's important that people stand up and encourage and try to lead people into making educated and compassionate choices toward loving people, even if they don't always agree with them. I'm hopeful that we can bridge the divide for many people, um, but I also know that not everyone's going to come along. I believe a good number will, Mm -hmm. simply because it's for such a time as this. What do you hope that people get from this film when 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 they finally see it? The film's goal is basically to be a catalyst. It's to encourage people to look at and begin dealing with this issue in an honest and a transparent way. Um, I think in so many instances there are people in the Christian community, some very prominent people, who need to seriously put Christ back into Christianity. Mm -hmm. There is so much about those who are most vocal in the Christian world whose actions are really anything but Christ-like, and not just with regards to homosexuality. This message of rejection... Um, is what the struggling Christian, gay or straight, hears and sees. And for those who are reaching out for God's love, this sort of denunciation just serves to turn those people who are most in need away from knowing him and truly experiencing the joy and the peace of God. We are all welcome at the table. You know, it's not an exclusive club. It's not something that's just for some. Christ said he, he died for all. All means all. That means everyone. Everyone is welcome. And I think I really want people to get that by watching this film. So when is the film coming out? Later this year, probably June or July. Great. Oh, that'll be good. But you also have, uh, that has come out of this film, a television show. Tell us about that. Well, we're working on it now. It's in pre-production. It's exciting because I interviewed so many people. Uh, There's no way we're going to get them all into the film. Otherwise, we'd be in a theater for days. (laughs) Um, We're planning to call it Struggles and Victories, and it'll be coming in 2009. Um, we also have some other projects in the work as well. So Struggles and Victories will be a lot of the stories that weren't a- we weren't able to tell, but it will be a whole lot more than that as well. So what are you doing next? Right now, well, I'm finishing the film, right? Uh-huh. Now, post, um, but I'm also working on a project called the Wave Festival. Ah, yes. Tell us about that, yeah. Okay, that's going to be on October 18th and 19th in Newport Beach, California. And the film, for such a time as this... Uh, going to have this amazing two-CD soundtrack, and we're inviting the recording artists, inspirational speakers, and comedians from the film to perform at the Wave Festival, and we're hoping to televise it worldwide and on the Internet. We want everybody to know about that, so that's something to look forward to. And is all of this available at a website somewhere? We are, people can go to www.hopeunlimitedproductions.com and find out a little more about the film, but we're working on the website now for the Wave Festival. And uh, all that will be up within the next month. For more information about the film for such a time as this, visit Darden's website at HopeUnlimitedProductions.com. In his book, Freedom, Glorious Freedom, John J. McNeil wrote, Gays and lesbians need to develop a conscious awareness of the destructive role of fear in their community. Our greatest enemy is not some outside opponent. It is the fear within us. I once had a friend who was very active in the MCC I attended in Atlanta many years ago. He was a member of the board. He helped coordinate worship. He was everywhere at once within the church. However, outside the church, he was closeted. I remember the first time I visited his house and discovered that all his gay-related books were locked away in the hall closet. He was so closeted, even his books were closeted. Growing up in the South, I can understand the deep fear this man had. 
He was basically a good old boy. His family had deep southern roots and certainly would not take kindly to one of their own being that way. So he hid. But the fear that drove this man was palpable. You could feel his paranoia and fear, even if you just spent a little time with him. This deep fear played itself out in several ways in his life, making his personal and professional lives a misery. I know that fear well, because as a good Southerner, I hid my own sexuality for a time. The fear of being revealed, of showing the world my true nature, was real and terrifying. I knew I would lose friends, jobs, church status, and maybe even family members if the truth were known. It's this fear that kept my friend and his books locked in a closet. It will finally be this fear that defeats the gay and lesbian community. It won't be an attack ad from the religious right. It won't be an organized assault by mainstream churches on the, quote, sin of homosexuality. In the end, our own fear will be our own downfall. Jesus tells us to have no fear of those who can kill the body. We're assured by God that when we live a life of honesty and integrity, free from the fear of retaliation, we will be blessed with an abundant life. We are God's children, and if God be for us, who can be against us? I can't adequately explain what a freeing experience coming out is. The English language is not equipped with words to describe that absolute joy and relief I felt. Oh yeah, there were losses. I lost a few friends, and I can't worship in truth and in spirit at my old hometown church anymore. But my losses have been minimized by the abundance with which God has blessed me. Now, as an open lesbian Christian, I have a wonderful partner, a job where I can be open and accepted, great loving and caring friends, a church community that values my gifts, and a family that, though they may not understand, has embraced both me and my partner. Coming out is the best thing you can do, not only for the community at large, but for yourself. Yes, you'll experience loss and pain and probably make some enemies, but in the end you defeat the biggest enemy you face, the fear inside that one day would have consumed you. holy humor. For decades, two heroic statues, one male and one female, faced each other in a city park until one day an angel came down from heaven. You've been such exemplary statues, he announced to them. I'm going to give you a special gift. I'm going to bring you to life for 30 minutes in which you can do anything you want. And with a clap of his hands, the angel brought the statues to life. The two approached each other a bit shyly, but soon dashed for the bushes, from which shortly emerged a good deal of giggling, laughter, and shaking the branches. Fifteen minutes later, the two statues emerged from the bushes, wide grins on their faces. "'We still have fifteen more minutes,' said the angel, winking at them. Grinning even more widely, the female statue turned to the male statue and said, "'You want to do it again?' And he replied, "'Yes, very much. But this time let's switch positions. This time you hold the pigeon down and I'll poop on its head.'" Thank you so much for joining us for another Whosoever Magazine Godcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can tell us your thoughts, comments, or suggestions by writing to us. Our email address is godcast at whosoever.org. Or you can leave comments at our blog at whosoeverpods.blogspot.com. The theme music for our program has been graciously provided by Adam Curley. Other music included samples from Trip Wamsley, Heavy Mellow, Scott Hill, and Reza Manzuri, all available from magnitude.com. 
If you'd like to join the Whosoever community, we have many online groups that you can join for fun and support. You can find Whosoeverins in your area when you join our Rainbow Fish groups. To find out more, go to whosoever.org slash rainbowfish. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider making a monetary donation to our ministry. It takes money to produce and broadcast this program and, of course, to keep our ministry on the web where we have been a valuable resource to our community for more than a decade. You can donate by credit card by going to our website at whosoever.org slash donate. Or you can send checks to Whosoever Ministries Incorporated, Post Office Box 727, Camden, South Carolina, 29021. Remember, Whosoever is a 501c3 nonprofit. That means all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. May God bless you. Until we meet again.